If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We begin reading in Proverbs chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here, and it is a great joy and honor to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, Before we dive in, though, would you you pray with me just real quick? Um, Father, we we continue to, to echo Dan and Kathy's prayers. We ask that you would be among us this morning. Uh, We ask that you would be at work in our lives. Speak to us, Father. Would you make our hearts receptive to what you might have to say to us? Uh, And Father, I confess my own need for you. Uh, All I have before me are are some feeble words, lest you come and infuse them with your power. So would you do that, Father? Would you be glorified in our midst today? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have you ever thought about how many decisions you make in a day? Well, scientists have, and I confess, I don't know how they calculated this, but but the prevailing number is that that the average adult makes 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every single day. 35,000. And if you've ever been to a grocery store, you know that number is just about right. Uh, In his book, The Paradox of Choice, uh, Barry Schwartz recounts a trip to the grocery store where he realized that he had a few options before him. Uh, He found that he could choose from 285 varieties of cookies, 85 kids' juices, 75 iced teas, 95 types of chips and pretzels, 15 different kinds of bottled water, 80 different pain relievers, 360 types of shampoo, 230 soaps, 275 varieties of cereal, 64 types of barbecue sauce, and 22 types of frozen waffles. And this is just a a microcosm of the, the vast number of choices that we have on any given day. Now, now, not all decisions are created equal. The, the decision between Crest and Colgate is probably not going to change your life. But there are other simple, insignificant decisions that, that totally change the trajectory of our lives. And the unnerving reality is that we typically can't discern which of those 35,000 daily decisions are going to have that level of impact until long after we've made the decision. 
And so we really do have this, this paradox of choice. Uh, on the one hand, we have more options available to us than any other generation. And yet the more choices we have, the more paralyzed our decision-making seems to become. And that's why we need wisdom. Now, there are a lot of good definitions for wisdom out there, but let me, let me share with you the one that's been most helpful for me as I've been preparing this week. Wisdom is competency with regard to the complexities of life. Wisdom is competency. It's knowing what to do, how to respond, regardless of the complex situations that pop up in rapid and random succession in our lives. And regardless about how you feel about Christianity, th this is something everybody wants. Everyone wants to be wise. And so the million-dollar que question is not, do you want wisdom? The question is, how do we get it? Uh, which is what King Solomon is sharing with his listeners in the opening verses of Proverbs. Uh, Solomon, arguably the wisest man who ever lived, is sharing with the next generation how they too might be wise. And if you'll, you'll allow me to, to paraphrase, Solomon is asking his readers, do you want to be wise? Do you want to have insight would you like to have wise dealings in your business? Would you like to have understanding in all areas of life? Well, then fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. That's where it all begins. That's the trailhead that will lead you to the path of wise living. And so what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time exploring this grand biblical theme that's here in Proverbs, but also in the rest of Scripture, that of the fear of the Lord. I want us to make sure we understand the path that leads us to be wise individuals. And so as we, as we journey toward that, that answer, I, I want us to make three stops along the way. I want us to look at what the fear of the Lord is, why we don't fear the Lord, and how we can change, how we can begin to fear the Lord. Now, now let, let's, let's be honest with each other. The, the fear of the Lord is, is a weird concept because we understand fear to be a negative thing. Uh, fear is the anticipation of pain or punishment, and it typically presents itself as, as terror or dread directed at the object we think is going to do us harm. And that's a little abstract, so let's, let's flesh it out. Uh, take someone who suffers from melissophobia, uh, which is not the fear of Melissa's, as great as that would be. Uh, <laughs> melissophobia... Is, uh, is someone who has a fear of bees. Uh, now, now, someone who suffers from melissophobia, when, when they see a bee, they will be filled with terror. Or, or if you begin talking about bees in their presence, they'll be filled with dread. Why? Well, because they anticipate that one day a bee will cause them pain. Or, or they assume that one day uh, that a bee will punish them for getting like, too close to their personal space. And so what, what does someone who's afraid of bees do? Well, they, they just avoid areas where bees are altogether. Or, or if a bee suddenly appears, they just like throw up their hands, scream, and run away. And, and what that shows us is that fear really does guide behavior. The things we fear dictate what we do. And so based on our experience, when we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what we hear is that if you want to be wise, live in such a way that you avoid 
punishment from God. Know that there is punishment out there and live in such a way that you avoid it. In other words, our experience leads us to think that Solomon is reinforcing this idea that God is a, a cosmic cop and that we ought to stay on his, his good side. That's, that's the way to go. Uh, because as, as regular cops have shown us, their presence is super effective at changing behavior. Uh, I, I'm assuming that we've all done this, that you're, you're, you're driving along, you're minding your own business, where out of nowhere, uh, a cop car shows up behind you. And you instantly panic, right? You, you check the speedometer, was I speeding? Yes, yes you were. Uh, but, but not enough that they should pull you over. And so you're, you're, you're left wondering, okay, what did I do? What am I doing? Am I doing anything wrong? And so you, you grip the steering wheel, 10 and 2, and you're going painfully slow, looking at your rearview mirror constantly, wondering why they keep toying with you. Why don't they just do it already? And this lasts for what seems like an eternity. It's really just a half mile. And then they turn off and you take a big sigh of relief. Now, why did you respond that way? Well, it's because your fear of the police changed your behavior. Because you're anticipating the punishment of a speeding violation, you changed the way you drive. And it seems like, based on our experience, that Solomon is telling us that if we want to be wise, we have to live like the cosmic cop is always on our tail. Here's the problem with that, though. While phobias are great at reducing the possibility of a negative experience, they don't actually add anything positive to our lives. And that really doesn't fit with how Proverbs talks about fearing the Lord. Uh, here, here are just a few benefits uh, of fearing the Lord found in Proverbs. Proverbs 10:27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14, 26, the fear of the Lord provides strong confidence and refuge. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and satisfaction. Uh, and Proverbs 22, 4, the fear of the Lord rewards riches, honor, and life. That doesn't sound like any phobia that I'm aware of. And, and that's because Solomon is not telling us that we should all be inflicted with theophobia. Uh, see, in Scripture, there are two ways that fear can be used. Uh, the, the first way is what we've been talking about, uh, a sense of, of terror or, or dread because we anticipate pain and punishment. But, but fear can also mean reverential awe. And, and, and I think there's, there's really no better way to illustrate this than, uh, than Buddy the Elf. Now, uh, if, if you haven't seen the, the Christmas classic, Elf, uh, there is a scene where Buddy, who is a human, but he was raised in the North Pole by elves, so he kind of thinks he's an elf. He's, he's in New York City at a toy store. Uh, and, and the manager comes out and announces that Santa Claus is going to be there tomorrow at 10 a.m. to take pictures with the kids. And Buddy is just beside himself with excitement. He's jumping up and down. He's shouting at the top of his lungs. He's telling everyone the great news that Santa's coming to town. And the scene is, is played off for laughs, but, but Buddy is actually showing us what the, the second, of, second definition of fear looks like. See, when Solomon says that we should fear the Lord, he means that we should be filled with awe and delight at who God is and what he's done. 
And that's why Buddy responds the way he does. He's not terrified of Santa. No, he knows Santa. He's, he's seen all the good that Santa has done. He's seen how kind and generous he is. And this fills Buddy with fear, with, with reverential awe and joy. And this type of fear guides behavior too. Uh, what does Buddy do after he hears that Santa's coming to town? He, he looks around. And he realizes that the toy store is not ready for Santa's arrival. And so he jettisons his plans. He, he shrugs off the judgmental glances of his coworkers. And he spends the night preparing the toy store for Santa's arrival. See, this is the type of fear that Solomon says will make us wise. When we delight in the Lord and his works, that fear will direct our actions toward wise living. Now, you might be wondering where I'm getting that from the text. Well, notice that Solomon doesn't say that we should fear a God. Uh, he, he doesn't have in mind some general apprehension toward a divine being. He says that wisdom begins when you fear the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's very specific. See, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, you might notice that sometimes the Lord is in all caps. And when that happens, the translators are indicating that Yahweh, the covenant name given to the nation of Israel, is being used here. And so when Solomon's original audience would have heard that they should fear the Lord, they didn't hear, I should fear God. They heard that they should fear Yahweh, the one who has shown unending and unwavering faithfulness, kindness, and care toward them. And it's in light of all that Yahweh is and has done that the appropriate response should be fear, a great delight in him. And this is what the fear of the Lord is. It's joyous awe. It's reverential delight in who God is and what he's done for you. And Solomon says that this is where wisdom starts. And in fact, Proverbs keeps coming back to this reality. The, the fear of the Lord shows up 19 times in the book of Proverbs. Why? Because it's just that important. But, but also, because it's not our default. See, we typically don't fear the Lord. And the second text that, that Dan and Kathy read explains why that is. Again, that was Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18, which says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Our text says that envy is the great antithesis to fearing the Lord. And that's probably a little surprising to you, because it was surprising to me. we all know that envy is a sin, but we typically don't think of it as an incredibly bad one. Uh, after all, envy is just wanting what someone else has. You see someone pull up in a new car, or they update their LinkedIn account to, to, to the fact that they got a promotion, or, or you see the highlight reel of someone's vacation on social media, and you think to yourself, man, that would be nice to have. What, what, what's the harm in that? But, but envy is more than just noticing what your siblings, what your coworkers or classmates have. Envy is the condition of our hearts that causes us to say, oh, if I just had that, if I was over there, if I was back there, if this was true of me, if people just thought of me this way, well, then I would be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. 
And when your heart, when our hearts are filled with envy, they're really just filled with delight for something other than God. It's it's saying that, that God, all that he is, all that he's done for me, that's not enough. I need fill in the blank. That's what our text is saying. That we have a choice and our tendency is to ignore the brilliance of God and delight in other things. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't delight in anything else, uh, like our family or things like that. What, what I am saying is that the reason we don't fear the Lord is because we delight in other things more than him. And that's a problem because delight determines direction. Whatever we delight in the most is the thing that will set the trajectory of our lives. It, it will shape the way that we talk. The thing that we delight in the most will, will, will be the thing that we keep discussing. It will keep coming back up in our conversations. We'll even steer the conversation towards it. Um, the thing that we fear most will, will direct our daydreams. When, when our minds have nowhere to go, it will go toward the thing that we delight most. We'll just effortlessly drift there. It will instruct our investments. We'll we'll pour our time and money into whatever we delight in most, and it will pull the strings of our heart. Our greatest delight will cause us to experience the highest joys, the hottest anger, should the thing we delight in be threatened, and the deepest sadness, should it ever be lost. And what Proverbs is trying to warn us about is that, that these other things that we delight in these things that we envy after, they don't lead us anywhere good. You know, you may be here this morning wondering why why you keep making the same mistakes or or why it doesn't seem like, or why it seems like your life is a wreck. And our our text would say that it's because we're all delighting in the wrong things. That the future, the hope that we're all looking for can only be found when we fear, when we delight in the Lord. Now, it is also possible to be sitting here this morning and think that this really doesn't apply to you because there's no obvious signs of envy cropping up in your life. Things are going pretty good for you. And on the whole, you are a pretty obedient person to the Lord. Here's the thing, though. Obedience isn't really a good indicator of fearing the Lord. Obedience can be an indicator but it isn't a guarantee that someone fears the Lord. And I think that's well illustrated by a guy named Doug Forsett, who was a, a bit of a legend in the TV show, The Good Place. Now, the, the gist of the show is that four individuals are trying to figure out what does it take to get into the good place when they die. In one episode, they sit down with uh, the person who got the highest good point score of all time. His name was Doug Forsett. And when we first meet Doug, he's an awesome guy. He's kind, he's selfless, uh, he's extremely helpful. But as the episode goes on, you find out that he is utterly miserable. He only eats radishes and lentils. He drinks recycled water. He routinely is taken advantage of, and he is constantly paranoid that he might do something that will negatively affect his score. And at the end of the episode, one of the main characters uh, tells Doug that, that surely, surely you've done enough. You, you've done enough good things to, to live a little. Maybe, maybe try chicken parm instead of lentils today. Uh, to which Doug says, oh, oh no, I, I, could, I could never do that. 
See, somewhere out there is an accountant who's watching my score. What if I relax and do something that causes me to lose enough points that I am tortured for eternity? No, no. I simply can't risk it. See, from the outside, it seemed like Doug was doing everything right, uh, but his motivation for doing them wasn't joy. It was dread. It, it was the conviction that the divine accountant would, would withhold from him something that he desperately wanted if he didn't act a certain way. And I, I wonder if we do that too. I wonder if we see that, that big test or making the team or finding a spouse or getting that promotion or having our kids turn out okay. I wonder if we see and delight in that thing so much that we obey, that we do everything as right as we can in the hopes that our numbers come out in our favor and the divine accountant has to pay out. He has to give us what we actually desire. See, obedience severed from the fear of the Lord is just another path to try and satisfy our envy. See, that, that's what our text is telling us. The reason we, we do not fear the Lord is because envy has taken root in our hearts. And, and what that means for our pursuit of wisdom is that really all of us are fools. That because we aren't relating rightly to God, we won't relate rightly to the world or its complexities. And so the question, of course, is how can we change? How do we uproot the envy and fear the Lord? Because it won't happen by simply trying harder. Uh, per perhaps you've, you've watched people attempt this. They, they throw themselves at being a Christian. Their, their discipline, their ministry involvement is, is so impressive. But, but if you look into their eyes, all you see is terror. They are worried that they're not doing enough or that they might do something wrong. And they either continue to be miserable as they knuckle under or they just cut ties and start living completely different. Either way, trying harder doesn't work because it doesn't deal with the heart issue. And uprooting envy won't come about because our circumstances change or get better. Uh, Genesis 3 shows us that. Um, you know, Adam and Eve, they're, they're in paradise. There is no death. There is no disease. There's literally nothing wrong. <laughs> they have all that they could want or need. But then there's that one fruit over there that they can't eat. And do you know what their heart says? I bet it's the best one. I bet that fruit is better than all the other fruits combined. See, even in a perfect world where they wanted for nothing, their hearts still delighted in something else. And that's because deep down in our heart of hearts, they and we don't trust God. See, it's very difficult to delight in something that you think might destroy you, that doesn't actually have your best interest in mind. See, we all have a very complex relationship with God. Uh, we were made to delight in him, but, but when we delighted in other things and subsequently rebelled against him, it, it introduced that, that negative fear into the relationship. And so now, now our standard for relating to God is one of anticipating pain and punishment, which pushes our hearts away from him to delight in other things. And what that means 
is that we will never fear the Lord as we were created to until the negative fear we, we rightly have toward God because of our sin is dealt with. And the Bible tells us that there's really only one way to do that. Um, in, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, we are told that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's, it's just like all the fairy tales, that true love solves everything. But, but in our case, it wasn't a single act. It was a person. See, see, just a few verses back, John defines what this love is for his readers. It's, it's God, but specifically God seen through Jesus and his propitiation for us. Uh, now, that, that is a Christianese word, but we have to use it because of what it means. See, propitiation means to turn away wrath. It's taking the incoming pain and punishment, turning it away from its intended target, and aiming it, turning it onto something else. And in this case, Jesus took the cause of our dread, God's righteous wrath for our rebellion. He turned it away from us and onto himself. And it's only through this that joyful fear is possible. It's the only way Psalm 130, verse 4, makes sense. Uh, there we read that, that with you, referring to Yahweh, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, this line must have driven the original hearers crazy. How, how can forgiveness lead to fear? Well, we see how in Jesus, don't we? Jesus, by his sacrificial death, removed any cause for dread or suspicion of God. He, he proves beyond a shadow of doubt that God is good and generous toward us. And when we, when we embrace his forgiveness, it, it eradicates the negative fear we have toward God, which in turn enables and inflames our delight in the Lord. But, but don't, don't, don't miss what I'm saying, though. The, the key is not to know that you are forgiven. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, an uh, American pastor from the 1700s, uh, he, he used to, to say that there is a big difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting the sweetness of that honey. See, it, it's not enough to cognitively know that God is good and caring. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me give you one way to do that. I have a friend who I think holds the record for, for consuming a burger at Hex. He, he, I've been told by several reliable sources he's done it between seven and ten seconds. Very fast. <laughs> and while none of us would contest that he's eating, I'm, I'm not convinced that he's tasting. And I think sometimes we come to the Lord like he comes to that burger. Uh, that this is something to be done quickly and efficiently. But to really delight in the Lord, you have to taste. You have to, to maul it over. You have to savor it. You have to roll it around in your heart and your mind and taste all the ways that God is the sweetest honey to your heart. This is how we become wise. By fearing the Lord, by, by delighting in all that he is and has done for us. And so, brothers and sisters, 
as you face the approximately 26,432 remaining decisions for today. And as that counter resets for tomorrow and the next day, let's be afraid. Let us be very afraid, not of the choice, but of the Lord, and live wisely because of it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you, and we marvel at you. We delight in your goodness, your kindness, your care, your love, your faithfulness, all shown to us in a myriad of ways. Father, we also confess, I confess, I have not feared you well this week. We have delighted in so many other things. Father, please forgive us. Forgive our wayward hearts that are so easily prone to wander and delight in other things. And Father, we do ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us a greater, more holistic, more beautiful vision of what you have done for us in Jesus. Even now, would you impress upon our hearts the great love and, and compassion and forgiveness that you have poured out on us. May that, may that melt our hearts, Father. May it, may it lift our spirits to sing praises to your name. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.